The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name's Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. And today, uh, we're very fortunate to be joined by uh, teacher par excellence and uh, uh, early Olin faculty member, Rob Martello. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's just, uh, I'm really excited to have you here. I've been an Olin uh, groupie and and hanger on for for some time, uh, probably eight eight or nine years now, and uh, met met you fairly on and uh, in in the course of events there, and um, we're going to jump into some of, some of that stuff, and we're, we're hoping to be joined by John Stolk, who is traveling in, in Brazil, and so hopefully telecommunications between our two countries will permit that, but um, uh, people can read more about your background, Rob, on the Voice America program page, but what, uh, what one, two, or three things should our listeners uh, know about you to to understand where you're coming from. Sure thing. Yes, and uh, I, I'm hoping that John will call in soon. I, I have a feeling he's trying to sort out the international phone calling issues there. But at any rate, as you just said, Dave, I've been at Olin since practically the beginning, since 2001. I was in the second group of faculty ever hired there. And um, the listeners might be interested in hearing that even though right now I am a professor of the history of science and technology, I actually come at this uh, field from an earlier background, earlier in my educational trajectory, of environmental engineering and even earth sciences. So it's really fun for me to look at problems from these different angles. And so I've done that throughout my education. And Olin College is a very small, innovative school that is really trying to reinvent engineering education and have some impacts on a larger stage. So not just with our own graduates, but by inspiring change elsewhere and by piloting some uh, new educational uh, methods and pedagogies and so on that we could then share with others. So uh, since I come at this from something of an interdisciplinary perspective and a bit of a background, I've tried to make that one of my goals at Olin. But I've also been interested in other pedagogical uh, ideas, such as project-based learning, and a real favorite of mine is intrinsic motivation. So yeah. those are a few things that really get me going. Yeah, and, and, and thanks for sharing that. And, 
And, uh, you know, we had, you know, Rick Miller, I think, was one of our first guests, if not our first guest. And, and right. we've talked about Olin on the show before. But um, as, as, an early, as an early faculty member, and some of our listeners may, may not be as familiar with Olin, what's, um, what's so great about Olin? Uh, what, what's, what's the idea of Olin and, and where is it today? Absolutely. That's a, it's, it's such a fun topic. We never get tired of thinking about that. And uh, Olin just has this wonderful history that there was an educational foundation, the Olin Foundation, that was looking for ways to make these big impacts on, on the face of engineering education. And after sponsoring buildings on different campuses, so some of the listeners may be aware of an Olin building on a different college campus, uh, the foundation basically sunk its... its finances into one college, which is Olin College now in Needham, Massachusetts. What makes it great here is that we're small, um, and we try and use our small size as a plus, not, not as a liability. So, say, what does our small size gain us? We can be agile. We can try things, and we can fail, basically. We can, we can pilot a course and learn from it, pilot a course in a very intentional manner. I've done this before. I think, actually, Dave, you, you know about this. You might have put this into your own book, as a matter of fact. But I love telling the students sometimes when they are part of an educational experiment. And because of our reputation and our history of trying to be innovative, that's seen as a plus by our students, by our faculty, by our administration. So one of the great things about Olin is we're trying our best to all be on the same page in these things. If I tell my students we're going to pilot a course for the first time, and you as students will help me debug it, if you will, figure out what's working, what's not working, relate the goals to the methods. The students don't run screaming, as you might imagine a sane student normally would, right? saying, no, thank you, I'd you know, rather sure. have a polished experience. They actually sign up for it. They want to, be, they want to pull the curtain back and say, you know, what's going on? How, how is he doing this? What are the intentions? And the feedback we receive is just magnificent. So what I tell a lot of my friends is that I learn something every day at Olin. I come here, it could be learning from my students, from my peers, uh, you know, you know, from from all these different locations, just because we're all in it together, trying to just experiment. And like I said, you know, failing, saying that failing is part of the program. A lot of people say that, but I've actually had courses where you know I run an assignment or a project, and it just doesn't work. And and we have learned to say to the students, okay, you, I, you know my goals, you realize this is what I was trying to do. Apparently, this didn't happen. What, what happened? What, what do we do from now? How do we collectively yeah. get out of this? It's really fantastic to be a yeah, part of that. It's nice that that level of openness is so unusual and yet so necessary for well, where the world is today. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's beautiful that, uh, that those kinds of things continue uh, to, hap- to happen at Olin. But, you know, one of the things on the show that we're really very interested in, and in, in a whole new engineer, you know, one of your colleagues and I, Mark Somerville, and I talked about the central, the, the key to this 21st century education we labeled as unleashing. And so, and I view many of the people that we interview on the show as people who have somehow found a way to unleash themselves to pretty bizarre stuff. I mean, it's not normal to teach a class like the way you just described. So, what what were some of the formative unleashing experiences or unleashing mentors who gave you the courage to to be different? Oh, that's a really 
That's a fun question. It takes me back, actually, before Olin even. So I believe I mentioned earlier that I come to Olin from this interesting trajectory, starting in the sciences as an undergraduate. Yes. I worked as an environmental consultant for a few years. I came back uh, to my education to a master's. Uh, it was a Ph.D. program in environmental engineering, so in an engineering school. But I left it after a master's degree to go into my Ph.D. program in the humanities and social sciences. And I think at each step of the way, I had this sense of what I was hoping to do. I was really trying to, I love science, I love technology, but I see them as fundamentally human endeavors. And so I've always been interested in, you know, how does this affect people? What are the, what are the goals here? What are the ethics behind this or the implications? And often I would feel stifled in some of these earlier experiences. I'd be doing coursework that was not getting where I wanted it to go. And if I tried to nudge it in that direction, it would just not work. It would just be, I would just receive messages, either implicit or yes. explicit, saying, wrong, wait, please get back to your equations. You know, what are you doing here? So it was in my master's program that I just had this observation that the things I was doing for my passion, reading uh, history texts and policy texts and so on, were not the same as what I was doing in my career, basically, in my, in my education, in my engineering classes. And it was a class I was taking in the other school, um, one of the different departments, uh, just the history of technology, where we were getting in all these. And, and my professor there was saying, Rob, you've got to do what you love. You know, and that's really his motto. And once I heard him say that, I realized I should be studying with you in this program. So it was learning I could switch majors and basically leave behind this earlier part of myself, which felt so much like a failure. Again, we're getting back to this theme of failing. And it was surprisingly hard for me to just come to grips with this idea of saying, you know, I was in a program aiming for a PhD, and I'm not going to receive that PhD because it's not right. And even though I spent some time going down that road, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't, so in that sense, it was not a failure. It shaped me. I learned from it, but I don't have to keep marching in that direction. I want to be intentional. And now that I'm here, I really, all of my education is focused around this idea of telling the students, what do you care about? Where do you really lie here as a human being? Can you, you know, switch, you know, switch what you're doing to line up with what you love and what you care about? And if someone makes you feel like that's a failure, it's them who's wrong, not you. So it was really this, my own sense of, of being able to to sort of let go of something that wasn't working that has helped me be here and now say yes to the things that I want and be able to just say no thank you to the ones that really aren't continuing to help me. Nice, nice. And, and so, um, and, and, and that notion of, of connecting, you know, it's essentially a notion of authenticity. So, you know, do, do, who, do what you are, do who you are, be, be who you are, uh, and do what you love, uh, that sort of it fills a, a lot of what we talk about in education for this century and beyond. But um, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to it's so hard to find. We we have so many other stories that sort of get in the way about who we are and who we should be. It that's actually a big part of um, of of life's um, journey. And I'm, I'm getting notes from Rob that he's having trouble connecting with us uh, from Brazil. Oh, so yeah, right. I'm sorry with, with thanks. Yeah. With John. So, um, uh, but we're hopefully we'll be able to, uh, be able to do that here soon. Um, good. Yeah. I, and I met, I met you in connection with your work at Olin and, um, and, um, and I guess it's fairly natural for a historian at, at Olin to uh, interact with material scientists and other other engineers. But uh, uh, how was it that that uh, that you and John uh, 
uh, came to work together. Actually, that's a, that's a funny story. I, I, I really do hope John joins us soon, but uh, he would tell this story almost the same way because we just laugh about it together sometimes. Um, we, John and I both started on the same day. We were in the same group of faculty members at Olin. I mentioned that I was in, hired in 2001. Uh, prior to me being at Olin, there were eight faculty members hired in 2000. So my group with John were the second class, if you will, of entering faculty. So there was an original group of eight, and they hired my group of eight. And John and I, so we basically started work on the first day, so together, you know, and we were all meeting one another and meeting the first group of eight faculty and the new group of eight, and John and I just were making conversation with each other. We shook hands, you know, and, um, and so on, the very, on day one, he said, oh, Rob, you study Paul Revere, because back then I was known as the Paul Revere guy. That was the book I was working on, Paul Revere, yep. looking at him as a historian from a technology angle, in a nutshell. And um, he said, wow, that's so interesting, Rob. You know, I, I, and, and I said, John, yeah, and you study material science. I read that on your bio, and it's great because Paul Revere works with materials all the time. And he's like, yeah, it's interesting, right? We have a lot in common, even though our disciplines are different. Wouldn't it be great if we could do something together? And we both had like a little laugh at that. It was such a pleasant conversation starter, a happy thought, but neither of us put anything behind it. You know, it was just, we were just being friendly at the time. Yeah. Um, Time passes, right? And then as we started looking at the curriculum, we were saying, you know, we need some real cool ideas here, something that Olin could do that other, other, classes, other schools don't. Wouldn't it be nice to have that, you know, play up, follow up with that idea we mentioned and have some course where, you know, we have material science and history. It, it would never work. We were both saying that over and over again. It's not possible, but boy, it would, sure would be fun, you know, and, and, and I said, yeah, because I, I would love to start with looking at ancient civilizations or something like that. You know, and John said, that's interesting because... For material science, we might start looking at material properties. That's like the sort of the basic building block of materials research. And ancient civilizations are choosing what technologies to develop based on these properties. So that's interesting. Our, our two disciplines aren't that disciplined. They kind of they aren't, aren't that different. They yes. kind of line up a little bit. And we thought, oh, it's funny. And John said, bad. But, you know, the problem is in material science, after we do properties and so on, atomic structure, we move on to fabrication methods and how those, you know, how you fabricate something. How does the method shape the properties? And I said, well, John, that's interesting because after we do uh, ancient civilizations, I would like to move to something I know better, such as Paul Revere, and he's fabricating things. So, wow, we seem to line up once again. And so it, both of us at this point are realizing this is no longer hypothetical. And one of us, I can't remember who, said this time a little nervously, gee, what would you do at the, after that for a finale? And then I think maybe John might have asked me that, and I said, John, I have no idea there. He said, neither do I. This is going to work, right? So we realized we had a course, basically, that we were talking about in three stages where materials and history seemed to line up well together, and neither of us had a very solid idea for what the third stage would be. And as we thought about it some more, we realized we were both very comfortable with that. We thought that after we stepped the students through the first two stages, we could maybe let them run free on the third stage, let them show us yep. where to take the course. This was where it all came together. We realized, you know, there are some lineups of theories and, and activities and so on, and also a lineup in our pedagogical approach. So this made us better friends. It made us, you know, better colleagues, and soon it became a course as well. Well, and, and the good news is that uh, we've been able to connect connect with John, and um, so I'm, we'll bring, I think it's a good time to bring John Stolk into the show. John, uh, welcome to uh, Big Beacon Radio. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. Hey, glad you were able to yeah, cross the uh, te technological divide between South, <laughs> South America and North America. Welcome to the show. And we've just, uh, Rob's been recounting how the two of you uh, 
uh, kind of met early on and how the idea for Stuff of History evolved, but we want to kind of circle back and, and, and introduce our listeners um, uh, to you. So what if, uh, if people and our listeners can read about you on the uh, program page, but what one or, one or two things should uh, our listeners know about you before we continue? Oh, so uh, I guess uh, I'd say that people should know that my my passion is uh, uh, right now trying to figure out how to design student learning experiences that uh, allow people to express their passions and find joy uh, and interest um, and connect with other people. So, uh, yeah, basically um, help to create experiences where others can find their, their own intrinsic drive and, uh, and share that uh, with those around them. Cool. And, uh, and uh, if, if I may, may ask, what takes you down to Brazil? Are you working with our friends at uh, INSPIR or one of the schools down there? Uh, that's right. Yes, I'm down here working with a group of faculty, about 20 faculty um, and three Olin College faculty, and we are running a three-day workshop um, that uh, is basically doing what I just described or attempting to. Um, so these are faculty who are new to this new school, uh, starting to create, uh, develop their course ideas, create some new experiences, and, and think about things that, that for many of them uh, they haven't really previously thought about. And how do you go from a traditional mode of, of teaching and thinking about uh, students uh, to, uh, to something different? Okay, great, and and um, we've got a couple of minutes till our uh, our first uh, break or so. And um, uh, one of the things that um, and 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 Rob had a chance to uh, talk about this on this show is, you know, uh, Mark Somerville and I talk about unleashing experiences for students. We know that your work is in line with that sort of thing, but I'm curious what. What in your life has unleashed you to have the courage to be different and do do the strange and interesting things that you do? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, yeah, so what has inspired me to be a little uh, crazy in this educational domain? Um, <laughs> that's I. You know, I think for me, it's it's really mostly about um, what I feel um, myself when I experience like a, like a deep uh, passion for, for what I do and what I see in other people um, when, when, that, uh, when they're able to, to find that for themselves. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's just a, this question of interest, passion, uh, love, a joy, these, these things just aren't part of the conversation right now in education and, and uh, kind of view it as, as part of my, my goal in life to, uh, to help those become more part of the conversation, um, shifting away from, from the things that we're accustomed to thinking about, uh, performance wow. on standardized exams and, and, uh, and toward something that is more aligned with, with uh, our, our whole person, humanness, well-being, um, these things that I think we all care about, but for some reason have kind of forgotten about when it comes to, to learning. 
Beautiful. Yeah, and of course, uh, on Big Beacon Radio, those words aren't taboo. In fact, they're almost required. And so this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guests, Rob Martello and, and John Stolk. And, and after the break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about uh, the stuff of history and then talk a little bit about uh, intrinsic motivation and self-determination theory. Stay with us after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education, www.wholenewengineer.org. The, for the, we're talking with some folks, uh, who, well, one at Olin and one who was at Olin, and the first chapter is all about Olin, so get that book and, and read all about it. So before the break, we were talking to, to uh, John Stolk and Rob Martello about, uh, about intrinsic motivation, interdisciplinarity, and other, other cool things, and, and, and the two of you got together in this course, the stuff of, of of history and so yeah we've got the material scientist we've got the historian um and but what else makes this uh this this course an interesting course john let's start with you uh sure uh so i i think the thing that makes this course uh run the way that it runs is really the the curiosity and the energy uh and the um this the sense of of fun um, that our students bring to it, um, but that stuff would I think fall flat without a course design that was responsive to it. So um, uh, Rob and I have, have spent quite a lot of time uh, refining the course uh, in in ways that will uh, allow for students to express themselves and explore and find the things that uh, uh, in material science and history of technology. Uh, find the things that that really work for them and that excite them. Rob, what That's would right. you add? Think, oh, sure. I think that uh, 
we both really embraced this idea of project-based learning, and it took us a couple of iterations to figure out exactly what we, where we were going with this, what we wanted it to do. We've taught the course, John, you want, I want to say about 10 times in total, maybe over a, a decade or mm-hmm. so. Yep. Uh, so it took us about two or three iterations of the, of the course to realize that even in, in the first iterations, when I would, teach by my, I would teach certain units and John would teach certain units and we'd come together, the coming together was where the course really worked. That's where it found its voice. And part of it was that we were together. And I was just thinking about Dave's earlier prompt about unleashing experiences. And one of my big unleashing experiences was John, to be honest, was learning from John and responding to what John would do in the classroom. And when John would get motivated and get excited by something, that would, I would feed off of that and, and bring it to the students, and they would feed off of both of us. So it was having a project, you know, even from the very beginning of the course, uh, that students could just run free for a little bit. Um, that was really, you know, something that was meaningful. But that said, as John, as John mentioned, it was the way we structured the course. We scaffolded the first project. We made sure that the students were prepared for the autonomy we were giving them so that it wasn't something paralyzing or stressful, but it was just something fun. They were able to get a few t- skills and tools and, and take them for a test drive. And then as the course went on, the autonomy would increase. They were more capable of running with things, and it just got really exciting by the third project. That's nice, and and this you know this theme of um, uh, structure and um, structure and telling and constraint and and freedom and autonomy and and uh, and sometimes uncertainty are that the balance uh, you know that the, they're they're opposites and teaching for the most part has has been a lot about structure you know that we've got this we're covering this material and. And it's structure, it's telling, a hundred percent. And so sometimes when you move to autonomy, you can go to you can go too far with it with without respecting that you need a better balance of structure and autonomy. Yeah, That's we made I'm that hearing. mistake, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, live, <laughs> okay. live to tell the story, I suppose. <laughs> Um, but uh, we, uh, we 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 messed around quite a bit with the uh, autonomy knobs, and when we think about autonomy. Uh, Rob and I uh, have a, a framework that, that we co-developed that we turn to that kind of identifies all the different choices uh, that teachers typically make in the classroom uh, that might be considered areas of, of opportunity for student choice and, and, and student control. And, um, you know, we kind of tried to, well, let's, let's give them everything, uh, let them choose everything, um, and... Uh, Turns out that that didn't work too well, and like you, like you suggest, Dave, the the, uh, the level of challenge got too high. Um, they felt like they uh, actually had no control, even though we were saying, "Hey, take take full control of everything." And uh, frustration went up, anxiety went up, um, and students shut down, and uh, really kind of went into uh, the crisis mode. Um, and uh, we learned from that and, and kind of recognized that, that uh, what we needed to find was, uh, were areas of a meaningful choice uh, that students were, were kind of ready to embrace um, and, and handle. Yeah, I remember uh, visiting the class once um, not that long ago, uh, maybe in 2011 or 12, no, 2012, I think. And, and uh, it's, it's not just about the design, though. It's also about how the faculty member shows up. And I remember, I remember John, uh, there were some students and they were working, I believe on, on, on nails, um, that Paul Revere ostensibly had made. And, 
they were obviously too brittle and and uh, and clearly any metallurgist you know would have kind of known that from the beginning and you held your tongue and let them figure figure out what the problem problem was and it and I think it requires kind of, uh, kind of not telling and not giving the answer is is uh, is part of the game here it's it's showing up different it's just showing up in a different kind of mode as as faculty member isn't isn't that part of it uh, yes, I think that uh, that's a huge part of it. It's it's funny that that uh, um, that you guessed that I I knew what was going on in the nails. I think that's true sometimes, uh, but there are many times in this class because of the way that that we've uh, that we allow or or uh, support students' own exploration that they're doing things that we're not experts in uh, and that we don't actually uh, know about. Um, and that for us, for, for me and Rob, it's hard to predict where they'll lead. Uh, sometimes though, it's true. It's true that, uh, I can kind of see, you know, the, or Rob can see the, uh, the disaster coming or the, the, the so-called failure coming, but, um, but we don't actually, um, we don't actually use that word failure much in the classroom. Um, we like to uh, replace it with exploration or experimentation or, uh, you know, they, they're, they're deploying a prototype in this, in this direction and they'll learn something from it. Uh, and our job is to support the exploration, not to, not to kind of, uh, lay on the answer or, or, uh, you know, serve as the, the all knowing expert at the front of the room. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so we live in, and I, I heard in, in the response before, uh, um, this idea of a framework around the autonomy and, and how to scaffold that. But, you know, we live in a time with so much uh, richness of uh, ideas in social and brain sciences. Um, what are some of the key ideas that influence your thinking around um, creating a course like this? Um, wh- whoever wants to take a crack at it first. Oh, so, well, I guess we could just talk about something that really shaped me, and I, I learned this only after coming to Olin, but this idea of just um, DC and Ryan's self-determination theory, just this, this idea of intrinsic motivation, um, which was something that was always important to me, thinking I would love to see students who are happy, you know, who are engaged. That would be really fun, you know, have a nice, positive environment. But taking it deeper than that and realizing that when students are truly intrinsically motivated, when they're doing something they care about, that they're, they're passionate about, that works for them, that they see the meaning in, uh, the students are not just happy. It's not just pleasant. It's deeper learning. It's critical yes. thinking that's taking place. It's retention. Um, and then moving that a step further and realizing that, again, motivation is not just me being up the front telling jokes and giving candy or something, but you know, it's actually giving students this sense of autonomy, of relatedness, and of uh, you know a feeling of competence, right? You know, so these are tangible activities that we as instructors can engage in and, and encourage among the students. To me, that type of learning really profoundly shaped my view of myself as an educator and the environments that John and I create. Nice, John. You want to add to that? Sure. Um, I'd I'd say that our understanding of student motivation in our own classroom and in other classrooms is really come a long way since we first started observing unusual student behavior, positive student behaviors, and, and inquiring about it. Um, and Rob and I uh, have, have been fortunate to receive some uh, National Science Foundation funding to study student motivation in our class and, and more recently in, in some other environments. And I think one of the interesting things that we see is um, 
that uh, if you look at what's going on at the activity level or, or what uh, DC and Ryan might call the situational level, um, there the motivational response can be very nicely and they're very well understood in that situation if you consider not just the person. Uh, the person is certainly part of it and, and you know, the background experiences that, that she's bringing, um, but everything that's around that person and, and what her responses are. So the, the person in situation, we say. But the thing that, that I think is really interesting is we, we've measured motivation on a week-to-week basis in our course, and we can see... Uh, at the at the individual level and at the group level, these kind of shifts um, as we go throughout the semester and how uh, you know, uh, particular students um, are engaging uh, or the whole class might might take a, a shift for the the better or for the worse depending on what's happening in the semester. And this idea that that we can understand what's going on with specific classroom activities, I think, is very empowering for for us as instructors um, because. This is what we're doing as course designers. We're actually creating, we're designing these experiences and the conditions in the classroom. Um, and if we can measure it and uh, uh, and and uh, and hold it up to our design, um, then I think I think it makes us better course designers. I feel nice. like this plays also yeah. into the autonomy framework that John mentioned before. When you might talk about, I love what John just said. He said we're, we are instructors, we're course designers, we have control over the environment. And you might say um, that one aspect of this control is, is, in fact, right, we could change the way that we give students autonomy. And you can imagine some students, some, some instructors, I mean, responding by saying, well, I'm sorry, but given my constraints, I can't give student auto- students autonomy. I, I need to retain control. John and I like to say, well, autonomy means a lot of different things. There's different places yes. where you could give autonomy. Perhaps you don't have the freedom to give students autonomy over the content of the course, for example, but maybe you can give them autonomy over the timing of different activities or over the location where they work or so many different areas of that. So this is what I think when I hear John talk about being a designer of an experience, it's really empowering to realize how much, how many options you have, how many variables that are involved in this course design process. And there are more things that you think you can do just if you take a step back and you know, really look at your context. Well, and we had the experience at Illinois of, of in a fairly structured and large lecture situation of, of simply uh, turning to purpose and saying, well, what's your purpose for being here? Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and talking about starting with different levels of purpose, what disciplinary purpose, societal purpose, why does somebody, it was a, the first time we did it was in a digital circuits course. What, and why are you here? And then students, and then why, and then why are you taking digital circuits? And, and then, and students expressing, oh, not having really reflected on that, but then being asked to reflect on it, their answers were oftentimes uh, moving and beautiful. On the other hand, in a normal class, if you just sort of cold uh, ask a student, well, what, why, what, why are you in this course? It's a required course. So the difference between mm-hmm. having a reason to be in a class versus um, doing it because it's required are, 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 are enormous. And, and so there's, it, it can even very, as, as I think you're suggesting, even fairly small things. You don't have to, you don't have to have two instructors in a, in a, in a class. You know, you don't have, need a historian and a material scientist working together over 10 years to, to do this stuff. You can, you can do it more, um, even with, with smaller things, as I think you're suggesting. suggesting. So what, um, yeah, I'd like, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Dave. I was yeah. just going to say, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I mean, one of the things that, that Rob and I like to suggest to people who are thinking about their own students' motivation is uh, any shift towards something more positive and on the motivational continuum, so you consider, you know, from uh, on one extreme, a motivation, so students are completely disconnected from yes. the thing that they're doing, but they're still doing it to various forms of extrinsic drive, to more internalized drive, to finally passion-fueled intrinsic motivation. Um, we think the important thing is understanding where your students are uh, when you walk into the classroom uh, and encouraging or designing the environment to encourage a positive shift, whatever that looks like. Um, and, I, and I would argue that extrinsic, doing things for extrinsic reasons is better than doing things for maybe better than, than being completely disconnected from the environment. Mm. But we can certainly improve on that and, and shift, like you're saying, to this sense of value or purpose or utility and, and hopefully, ultimately, uh, this sense of, of joy and interest and, and passion in what you're doing. Um, but, but, uh, but designing experiences uh, for that shift is, is I think, really, um, really what we need to keep in mind. Sure. And, you know, and actually part of this conversation, you know, so a lot of times conversations about motivation, I'll, you know, I'll be in workshops myself and somebody will say, well, how do you motivate students? <laughs> As though it's, you know, well, and it is something that we, in, certainly we do the demotivating part to them. But uh, but uh, this, the idea that you can sort of force someone, um, uh, I mean, there's a lot actually packed into that question of how do we how do we motivate students? But they're built into that. One of the things that's probably built into that is the sense that there are um, um, the students are intrinsically unmotivated, uh, and and that we that something needs to be done to them. And I, that, that sort of takes me to Carol Dweck and, and mindset, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset theory. Does that, does that stuff play into any of your work? Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm definitely uh, pretty keen on, on Dweck's work. Um, you also made me think of the, the creativity literature, you know, this, this idea that uh, mm. Um, there are some creative, it's the same as motivation. Some people like to label, you know, creative and uncreative types. Yes. Um, mm. but I think if we, if we kind of gonna, if we kind of go back to who we are as, as people and we, uh, subscribe to, uh, humanistic views, um, then, you know, but I think the evidence suggests that, that we, uh, as humans are naturally, uh, driven to growth, uh, driven to engage, driven to connect with other people, driven to create. Um, uh, we are fundamentally, I, I believe, growth-oriented. Um, and, uh, and I think we, uh, uh, we as instructors uh, need to just figure out how to, uh, how to encourage our natural being, um, our natural uh, uh, humanness in, in the classroom. Rob, we've got a, a, about 30 seconds to break. Do you want to add, add something to that? I just think that it's been, it's been amazing having this idea of the growth mindset you know, in, in our teaching. It's just wonderful to look at the students as a group of individual learners and, um, and not just sort of stereotype them. And sometimes when we're doing workshops, we hear people say, oh, Olin's students are so motivated, my students are not. And it just shows you how, many, how prevalent some of these attitudes are out there and how, how much uh, of an impact we could have if we change these big attitudes. 
Yeah, nice. So and and so let's uh, let's take a break and and um, uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guests uh, John Stolk and Rob Martello and and um, I think in the next segment we want to talk about how do we bring these ideas and these practices. Uh, out into the wild you know so it's one thing to have them at a place like Olin how do we get these things out uh, 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 more into the world so stick with us after the break and we'll talk about that Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Get the leadership, coaching, and deep faculty development you need to transform higher education at www.3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with with me, Dave Goldberg, and, and my guests, uh, John Stolk and Rob Martello. And before the break, we were... We were talking a fair amount about intrinsic motivation and or different different uh, kinds of motivation and how they play out in the classroom. And in this segment, we want to you know talk practically about how do we get this stuff out into the world. And and uh, one of the things that's happened for you, John, is uh, you've switched jobs uh, ostensibly to to be able to do that more. What you're, you you uh, tell us about your new position at uh, SMU. Uh, so I, about four months ago, moved from Boston down to Dallas um, and started a position as the executive director of the Crew Institute for Engineering Education at SMU. Uh, and, I, and I work with a group down there that includes um, kind of an interesting group of people. There's some designers, there's an architect, there's some uh, experts in uh, external communications, um, and some staff with, with extensive experience in uh, K-12 education. Um, and uh, we, we have a, an emerging mission, I would say, to basically um, go around uh, varying levels of education, including college, uh, undergrad, and, and graduate school, uh, but also K-12, and engage with uh, instructors and administrators uh, in um, 
developing ideas that are, I would say, loosely about educational innovation, uh, more specifically about uh, things like active learning, uh, project-based learning, design thinking, uh, and and uh, better understanding uh, creativity, motivation, self-direction in the classroom at all levels. So kind of a, a broad um, charge, and uh, we're still trying to figure out what exactly that means, but we've, we've started interacting with uh, with faculty and administrators uh, at all all educational levels. Great. So it sounds like a, a, you know, Olin was a pretty good platform for, for spreading things around, but this sounds like it gives you um, a new venue into uh, different different audiences. Yeah. One of the, uh, the things that I'm learning is that the K-12 domain is uh, an entirely different animal than, than uh, undergraduate domain. Now, what would you, if you were to characterize it uh, simply uh, from what you've learned so far, what would you say the the big differences that you've noticed? Well, um, a couple of things. One is the student performance, and maybe this isn't that different than the the more traditional thinking at the college level, um, but this, this singular focus on uh, what is called academic performance, which is basically defined as as performance on standardized tests, uh, is such a powerful force in in K twelve systems, especially public school systems, um, where everything kind of ultimately ends up with students taking standardized tests and their teachers and their systems uh, evaluation based on the students' performance on those exams. Uh, so really, uh, really quite different than what what I was used to dealing with at Olin. Yeah, and and this is a little bit off the beaten track, Rob. But I, I think the the work's so interesting. Uh, uh, you were involved in a recent effort at Olin to assess uh, faculty productivity. Uh, productivity. Pro, it's easy for me to say productivity <laughs> in a different manner um, beyond the old uh, uh, three saws of teaching, research, and service. And so, what did uh, what was what was that effort all about at Olin? Yeah, actually, Dave, it, it does connect to a lot of the ideas we were discussing. I guess at Olin, John and myself and other people, you know, over the years came to realize that this this curricular change we're trying to bring about, this change in faculty and student mindset, is really pretty immersive. It's, a, it's both a top-down and a bottom-up process. In other words, you need faculty and students who are motivated to work together in new ways and take risks, but you also need a supportive environment that, that allows this experimentation to happen, allows these, these things to play out. And uh, if you looked at Olin's faculty manual a while ago, it did have the old standard you know, teaching, research, and service bins. And even though Olin was doing its best to uh, bring reasonable standards to play when faculty were having their annual discussions and so on. It wasn't these, this metric for assessment of faculty uh, success just wasn't really measuring up to what Olin was really hoping people would do. So we led this effort in the reappointment and promotion committee, right, over one year. I was a member of that committee, and we just said, you know, what can we do differently here to really line up, you know, Olin's goals with, you know, what's happening? You know, let's, just, let's have faculty's annual reviews be productive and relevant. So 
two things really changed of this. The first one was we just changed the names of those bins, first of all. So instead of teaching, we talk about developing students. And instead of research, we talk about having an external impact so everything doesn't just stay within the walls of the school. And instead of service, we talk about building the college. So that was a step in the right direction. But what I'm really excited about is we removed the thought of bins. In other words, something where a faculty member will perform activities and drop those activities into bins and hope the water level will rise to the point where they get promoted or receive tenure or something like that. And instead, we see it more as a Venn diagram. And we're saying you're doing a lot of activities and you could do more than one thing at a time with a given activity. And you shouldn't have to just put it in one place, but you should get double or triple credit for it. We should just let things happen organically and broaden the definition of what it means to be a faculty member and and talk about external impact, for example, as something that you can achieve through an innovative course that you develop and then deliver a workshop about or an educational paper instead of a paper in your disciplinary subject. So by doing this, we open people's minds to what was possible a little bit, uh, lower the temperature of the annual review somewhat, and let people think a little bigger. So I think this helped line up what Olin was asking people to do with what the people wanted to do and what was needed to create these changes that we really hoped for. So this is still a, a work in progress, Dave, but it's exciting so far to see just people really starting to run with it and talk about their activities just in a bigger sense. Uh, and, and I like the it's, way that uh, you... You know, I like the way that you frame that as 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 connected to what we're saying. Yeah, you know, so we go off and do these things so that our students have these unleashing experiences. But sometimes the uh, the old categories were 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 pretty directive and and uh, and and not you know and 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 not very um, stifled faculty creativity in the in the same way that we're trying to open up student creativity. That's exactly right. Interesting that you say that. Um, that's exactly where our uh, motivation research seems to be uh, directing us right now is toward uh, faculty and what their situation is like uh, as learners, as, as people who want to be engaged, uh, and, and the larger system uh, and, and what it's doing to encourage intrinsic uh, drive as opposed to uh, externalized uh, behaviors. It's so funny, in in the research uh, that I'm doing right now, we've collected a lot of data from faculty around the U.S. uh, who are teaching introductory science courses or engineering courses, you know, like intro chemistry. And almost to the person, they will acknowledge the importance of passion and interest-driven learning. They express a desire for students to find relevance and value in their work. They will uh, uh, they'll admit that students are better served when they adopt growth-oriented or learning-oriented attitudes compared to grade-oriented attitudes. Uh, but at the same time, these instructors will deploy learning activities and create environments that are more control-oriented than autonomy-oriented. And they'll embrace assessment approaches that activate uh, grade, grade-oriented behaviors. Uh, so we asked them about this, and it's so interesting that they... Uh, um, instructors will point to different things in the system. They'll they'll uh, cite departmental assessment policies. You know, for example, mm-hmm. an instructor told us that she has to give exams uh, of the traditional form. Uh, it's a requirement of her department, um, even though she would like to you know opt out of that and do something different. Uh, they pointed accreditation uh, requirements, disciplinary traditions, or the norms uh, within their their institutional learning culture. Um, so I think this is kind of interesting to start to uh, start to interrogate 
um, the, what's going on at the faculty level and the larger system level and ask the same questions. You know, what, what, are, these, what are these situations doing to uh, support externalized drive versus, versus internalized um, uh, engagement? That's so interesting, and and uh, and it's, it's it's interesting that this is sort of a you know been a natural outgrowth of where your your research has led as well. Um, okay, so you guys have been you're, you're pretty experienced in doing this yourselves. Uh, you've you've uh, you've been running workshops. You take you know John, you're in Brazil right now running a workshop. Uh, you, you know, people come to Olin. Uh, you go around the world and help people. How? Um, what have you learned from trying to run these workshops and help uh, to help people to try to to uh, show up differently as uh, um, in- instructors that uh, bring out more in students? I, I could just jump in by saying we mentioned earlier the idea of the instructor as a designer. And that's a very empowering thought. We have a lot of people come to our workshops just thrilled by the topic, eager to do something, but feeling powerless. John, might, John mentioned a few options. They might be saying my department or in other countries they might say the Ministry of Education is leaning on me in this certain yeah. way. And it's just really interesting to say, well, what can you control? What, when you go into the classroom, what do you do? What, what choices are you making and why? And too often the answer is, well, it's always been done this way or I inherited the course with these constraints in mind or, you know, students expect a test to look like this, A, B, and C. And when you sort of back up and do a little bit of what engineers called the design process, right? Just, you know, start with some blue sky thinking, look at the goals that you have in mind, look at uh, best practices elsewhere. You find there are opportunities for win-wins. There are opportunities where the students and the faculty both want the same thing, and what's traditionally happening is not delivering that. And so not everything is doable. There's, like we said before, there are types of autonomy you just can't give in certain settings. Sure. But there usually is something you can do as long as you're aware of the range of possibilities. So nice. I think that it's, it's, it's about just understanding what, you know, what options you have and, and what's possible. Well, and uh, letting people know that they're in choice. They think that, they, that they're, the system's overly constrained. John, and we're, we're coming to the end of the show, but what would, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I, I'd say going along with this idea of instructors as designers, uh, we like to suggest that people uh, generate some ideas and try something. Um, generate ideas that, are, that they think will, uh, that, that will result in students feeling uh, a higher sense of confidence or self-efficacy or more connected to other people uh, or, or some sense of purpose or some, some sense of choice and freedom. You know, think about those things. Think about your students' needs, and then just try something, uh, and you'll learn from it. And you might, you might misfire, but uh, we'll call it a prototype, and we'll reflect on it, and we'll we'll adjust and and, and move on. Uh, the other thing that I I think has worked out really well for us is we've introduced some people to uh, some of these tools that came out of educational psychology. So simple surveys for gauging a student response uh, to a particular activity and. Uh, and helping them make sense of the, the results they get back. So we've been in a number of, of uh, uh, email um, uh, communications with faculty from around the world who say, hey, I, I tried this thing, like you suggested. I prototyped an activity, and, and I got uh, this response back. And here's the data. We'd love for you to, to help us understand and interpret what we're seeing here and, and, um, and, and learn from it. So that's been kind of fun. 
Great. We, we have very little time left, but uh, uh, John, maybe one thing that you're working on, and then uh, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, so, again, I'm at uh, uh, SMU in, in Dallas right now at the Cruz Institute, so uh, shoot me an email, uh, jstolk at smu.edu. Um, and uh, I'd say uh, what I'm really keen on right now is a couple of things. One is how do we combine ideas of, again, faculty as designer or design thinking with uh, ideas that are, are um, uh, uh, reflective of, of sound uh, pedagogical practice. So Carol Dweck, uh, motivation theory, yeah. uh, creativity Be theory. Um, I'm very interested in that. So um, I'd like to thank our, our guests, uh, John Stolk and Rob Martello, for, for joining us today. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Uh, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at www.bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, and we'll have uh, guest Beth, Bev Jones on the show to talk about, about her new book. Join us next week, same time, same station. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.